I'm the daughter of immigrants. And but for 65 people on December 12th, 1972, taking a boat to arrive in South Florida, I, Vanessa Joseph, could not be the person that I am today. I'm Jenny Guilfoyle. And I'm Lindsay Goldford Gray, and this is Inadmissible. Today, we are thrilled to be speaking with Vanessa Joseph. Vanessa is an attorney at Catholic Charities Legal Services in Miami. And at Catholic Charities Legal Services in Miami, she provides immigration legal services to a wide range of migrants, including many Black migrants. And I should mention, along with her full-time immigration practice, She's also the elected city clerk in the city of North Miami, and she is the youngest and also the first black female elected city clerk in North Miami. Um, so we are just thrilled to have you with us today, uh, Vanessa. Thank you so much. Thank you for the invitation. I'm so thrilled to be here. In previous episodes, we've focused on the US asylum system and we've touched on um, a lot of ways that the U.S. treats asylum seekers and immigrants differently depending on what countries they come from and what they look like. And we're recording this episode during February, Black History Month, and we want to focus in this episode on Black migration. So Vanessa, um, you work at Catholic Charities Legal Services in Miami. You have clients who come from all over the world, including many Black migrants. And I'm wondering what you can share with us about the experiences of your Black clients and how Black migrants generally are treated in the U.S. immigration system. It's interesting because I live in Miami-Dade County, and we always talk about it as a county of immigrants. We hear immigration talked about all the time around here, but it's almost always centered around non-Black immigrants, whoever they may be and wherever they may come from. But even as the number of Black immigrants in the U.S. grows significantly, they're often left out of the conversations and stories we hear about immigrants. And we, we almost never talk about how Black immigrants are more likely to be detained for criminal convictions or how mass criminalization of Black people in general leads to the significant disparities we see within the immigration system. You know, here's an easier way I think we could put it. Black immigrants are essentially facing treatment that mirrors the experiences of Black Americans in the United States. So happy Black History Month. Yeah, thank you for sharing that, Vanessa. Um, in kind of looking at a particular population that you're working with in Miami. So you're in Miami, which has a, a large population of Haitian migrants. And so I'm wondering if we can focus specifically on Haitian migration and what the experiences of are like of your Haitian clients right now and how are they being received at the border? How are they being treated? And what are the biggest issues and challenges facing Haitian immigrants right now? It's, you know, as far as my clients, it depends on the day and who I ask. Certainly I have a number of clients who are struggling to survive and make a way in what is a foreign land and a foreign system. They're 
forced to navigate a new life in America as if the traumatic journey to get here didn't even happen. But I also have clients who are breathing huge sighs of relief because of the designation and redesignation of temporary protected status or TPS. But at the border, it's a completely different experience. I think we all can remember what happened in Del Rio in 2021 and what those images coming from the border showed us about what was happening. And I think for folks who are listening to us who are attorneys or immigration service providers, we knew some of this stuff was happening already. And the reality is that the border is an extremely difficult place for many immigrants coming into the United States, but especially Black immigrants, especially based on the stories that I've been hearing from my Haitian clients. And it's a difficult place that they're having to go through as they try to seek refuge in the United States. You know, many experience things that we would not believe takes place in the United States, right? They're, they're being subjected to harsh treatment, being herded like sheep or cattle. They're placed in ice cold rooms or they're caged up outside as they await their fate. Are they going to make it past the go line? Are they going to be detained somewhere else in the country? So for a lot of people and Haitians in specific and black migrants specifically, they're finding it really disappointing to arrive at this great beacon of hope and the American dream only to be treated as if they were nothing. You know, as far as the biggest issues or challenges facing Haitian migrants right now, it's that we're seeing widespread violence and insecurity in Haiti. And instead of seeing each individual and considering their individual asylum claims as the law allows, their claims aren't being given the consideration required and instead are being treated as refugees of a common issue that's happening in the country and not people who are actually being targeted and persecuted in the way that asylum law provides protections for. So when we think about what folks are having to experience, it's the fact that historically, even when the situations mirrored what other countries were going to, Haitians have always been looked at as if they were just fleeing economic persecution or um, scarcity in their in their home country. And so people are not having their, Haitians are not having their asylum claims considered in the way that you're seeing for people fleeing from other countries. Absolutely not. And that's problematic because the law allows for people to present an asylum claim and really doesn't tell you that it has to be a 100% chance that something's going to happen to you when you return to your country, right? The standard is absolutely not that high. And so to be at the border, to be in front of an asylum officer, to be in front of a judge who is essentially trying to hold you to that standard or come and tell you that your 
claim is not valid because it's not one that they can relate to. It's not one that they find plausible. It's not one that they think is genuine, is really sad and is really disheartening, I think, as a practitioner, but also as a Haitian woman who sees both sides of Haiti, who sees, who has seen when Haiti was a great place for some to live, but who has also known that while some people have been able to live incredibly luxurious and safe and enjoyable lives in Haiti, there were people who never stood a chance to do that. And how do you see, I mean, you talked a little about um, the way that U.S. immigration officials um, approach Haitian cases and the kind of biases they bring to this. And how do you see that kind of play out at an individual level in people's cases in terms of the biases and assumptions that say immigration judges might bring to these cases? I've had so many instances where because the judge lacked knowledge or they didn't understand the infrastructure of Haiti or lack thereof or architecture in Haiti, there were certain things that they just couldn't wrap their head around. So there's often this example when you start at Catholic Legal Services and you start working with Haitian clients is shared with you. It's the story of two individuals who had similar claims but one said that when he was running away, he ran under to run underneath the bed. And then another one said he ran into a closet. And the judge ended up believing the person who ran into the closet because the judge did not find that the story of the individual who ran, who ran and hid underneath the bed was plausible. But the judge didn't ask, well, do you even have closets in Haiti? Right. Because in this particular home, while some people in these newer constructions, newer homes do have closets and closet space, traditionally Haitian homes were not built with closets. You would have a separate structure. We call it an umwog. I think uh, some people may call it a buffet. Everybody calls it something different, but there's something different, kind of like a dresser or you may have a, a kind of a cabinet that you place, you purchase, you place, or you, you have built for you. And that is what's going to hold your clothes, but not a closet because we don't have that. But some people were putting cinder blocks underneath their mattresses. And so you would have a situation where the bed was actually elevated enough that a person could absolutely slide and lay under the bed but not knowing that this is how Haitian houses are constructed, this is how folks set up their beds, people aren't aware, and the judge in particular may not be aware that the person who is sliding under the bed may actually be the one who has the credible story. And, and all of these things, I mean, you can apply it to so many other things, even how when some Haitians tell a story, they'll tell you that if they were running, they jumped from one roof to another. And people think about roofs. I mean, it depends on where you live, but in Miami, our roofs have an apex. So you technically probably couldn't do that. But in Haiti, that's not the situation. A lot of the homes in different areas are actually flat and your neighbor's house is constructed in a way that it's actually attached to you. So you could, in theory, 
jump from one roof to another. It's not impossible. But if we don't know that, and if we allow ourselves to approach this conversation with a preconceived notion of what architecture absolutely has to look like, then we're always going to miss the mark when it comes to allowing people to present a claim and actually granting them the benefit that they so deserve. And you, you find that judges often aren't open to even asking questions or questioning their own assumptions. Absolutely not. And I also want to mention that I don't think that it's always because they don't want to. We also have to remember that the way the dockets had been set up for a time, it was difficult for, for judges to really take their time to flesh out each point of the story. So I think it's up to us as immigration advocates to stack the record with information that makes clear to the adjudicator what they're actually looking like. So if you already know that your client is going to talk about jumping from one roof to another, first thing I do is try to Google the homes in Haiti so I can add a reference that they can look at. And what are the reasons that your Haitian clients are leaving Haiti right now and coming to the United States? And I know it's hard to generalize that everybody has their own individual story, but what kind of stories are you hearing from people? Absolutely. There are many who are, of course, fleeing the violence that has overtaken the capital and surrounding areas. But we're also seeing a rise in femicide where women and girls are being killed and targeted for sexual violence. People are being kidnapped, but especially women and young girls. We're seeing people who are being targeted as a result of various political conflicts that have lent themselves to the violence that we're seeing in Haiti. We have seen the rise in kidnappings and of religious leaders, and we're not certain why or how that phenomenon is taking place. And people are fleeing because they want to find safe refuge for themselves and their families. I mean, if you were being persecuted, if I was being persecuted, I would want to make sure that I can be somewhere safe. And we can't have that double standard just because someone's from a different country. Absolutely. And that's is or should be the foundation of our refugee law and the reason that it was put into place. Um, the reason that we allow people to seek refuge in the United States, but we also see um, our government continuing to chip away at that right um, and trying to block people, especially when they're coming from particular countries, um, including Haiti, from being able to get to the U.S. and, and seek refuge and then setting up roadblocks and uh, making it very difficult for people when they do get here. Um, I wanted to, to just uh, ask too about, do you see any difference in the way that your Haitian clients in particular are being treated in the United States as opposed to people who are coming from other places? Of course, it depends on which countries we're talking about, but for the most part, we're not seeing the same compassion the same care, the same sensitivity given to Haitians as what we see for other people from countries where we, from where people are fleeing and, and we're serving them, right? So 
the situation in Haiti, although it's being considered unfortunate and sad, but yet the level of sensitivity given to it, the way that it's framed is often in a way that completely minimizes the situation and what people are really having to deal with. And so to not consider what is happening over there, essentially a war, to me, demonstrates discrimination against an entire group of people or racism, if we want to just be honest about it. We're not really trying to make the case for why individuals who are fleeing for their lives, for their safety, with their families and young children, we're not making a case why that is justifiable. Instead, we're saying that it is so sad. Haiti is the poorest country in the Western hemisphere. Haiti has always been wrought with problems and we hope to see a Haiti that can one day thrive completely ignoring the reality of what's happening and the fact that people need assistance. And part of that assistance is safe refuge here in the United States, especially if they've come here requesting it. Absolutely. And in terms of seeking refuge in the United States, the United States, um, there have been a lot of efforts recently to block people and asylum seekers from getting here. And we've talked about that in Title 42 and other measures in previous episodes. But the administration did just launch this new uh, parole initiative for um, people from four designated countries, which is Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Haiti, to come to the United States with the help of sponsors here. Um, but there can be, it can be a kind of a hard, program to access. And I'm wondering about how viable that seems for the people that you're working with, for them to actually be able to access that program. <laughs> you know, it's um, it's really hard to say, right? Because when it was first announced, there were a couple of reports of people being quickly processed, receiving their responses from DHS, and their approvals were just quickly sent out to them. But now we've seen a slowdown in approvals. And as I last learned, it was taking about 90 days for DHS to process these applications, to even really look at them to see if they're going to reject or approve them or ask for more information. And I think that there's that lack of clarity too, right? Just in the way that you would receive a receipt notice and maybe biometrics notice and some kind of status update, you can go on USCIS, USCIS case status and look up your case status. There's a lack of clarity as to where your application is in this pipeline and a lack of clarity on who you can call if you do need an update, right? So many people are coming to me. I didn't even fill out the application for them, but they're coming to me to see if I can figure out what is happening with the application. And I think it's also pretty difficult for some people given the fact that most of the process actually takes place online and on the beneficiary side through a smart forum, through a smartphone. And for some people that technology may not be easy to access. And speaking of the beneficiary, we also have to remember that electricity is hard to come by in Haiti on a normal day. 
So in this Haiti, I can only imagine that even if I did have a smartphone, how difficult it could be for me to actually charge it and download an app to it and use that to continuously check the status of my application. And I think you kind of alluded to it, right? We, we know that programs like these have a tendency to actually slow down migration from the qualifying countries. And certainly, I think there are some Haitians who are holding on to hope that someone in their network here in the U.S. is going to sponsor them. And that would be the ideal way for them to come to the U.S., especially considering how they're being scared into not taking the journey to come through the border. But what if you can't wait? And what if what if your life is in such imminent danger that another day could be your death? And you're told that you'll be turned away at the border. I mean, what do you do then? And I think many are struggling with that question. And I do think programs like these definitely should exist, but not in such a way that it would prevent or discourage people from coming here to request asylum. And I know we've talked about this before, Jenny. I just want to make an aside, open a parentheses, and remind folks that there's nothing illegal about coming through the border and requesting asylum. It's the law. It's literally in the book of laws on immigration. It's exactly what the law says. You know, we keep talking about, people keep talking about a line, the, the immigration laws don't refer to a line. They don't say you have to get in line to, to request asylum. And you can't request it outside of the country. So unless I've come by plane with a tourist visa and requested it after I've been admitted and, and come in, right? I have to go to the border because when I come by boat, you intercept me and send me back. So if I don't come to the border, how am I gonna get in here to, to request asylum? And so what we're not realizing is that we keep allowing people around us to call things illegal, to say that, oh, they need to wait in line, and yet we're not asking them what line, and where is this line, and where do I get the number to get in the line, because there is no line. Thank you. It's, we have, we've, we've been talking about this on previous episodes of the podcast, too, and you've just put it so well that uh, seeking asylum is absolutely legal. And as you put it so well, there is no line. Um, and a program like this parole program is not a substitute for allowing people to lawfully request asylum at the border. Um, before we wrap up, um, and thank you so much for everything that you've shared, I just want to ask you, is there one final thing, if you wanted people to know, what would that be? I think I mentioned it before. I I definitely want people to know that we oftentimes make assumptions about things that are new to us or 
things we don't really know or understand. And we shouldn't let those assumptions or really our biases direct how we interact, how we work with, or how we serve our immigrant communities. They're already going to be judged, literally in court or at an interview, but our job as service providers, our job as advocates, or our role as allies is to provide them with support and treat them with dignity and respect. I'm the daughter of immigrants. And but for 65 people on December 12th, 1972, taking a boat to arrive in South Florida, I, Vanessa Joseph, could not be the person that I am today. It took sacrifices. And I think we all have our immigrant story. This nation is a nation of immigrants. And we absolutely cannot forget that. And we absolutely cannot stop telling those stories. We have to lift up the stories of immigrants, the sacrifices of immigrants, and the work that they put in into building this nation. Happy Black History Month. Wow, Jenny, Vanessa had so many important and insightful things to say. She talked about a couple of things that I'd love to do a little bit of a deeper dive on. One of the things is that she sort of mentioned in passing what happened in Del Rio. Can you tell us a little bit more about what did happen in Del Rio? Absolutely. And this was uh, back in 2021. And Del Rio is in Texas along the border with Mexico, along the Rio Grande. Um, And this was when the United States was continuing to expel migrants under uh, Title 42, which, as we've discussed in previous episodes, is this uh, very old public health law that the U.S. has been using as a pretext to block asylum seekers from coming into the U.S. And back in 2021 in Del Rio, Texas, there were a large number of Haitians um, who were coming to the U.S. to seek protection. And uh, Border Patrol used uh, violence to expel people from the country. And there was a lot of reporting done on this and photos and video footage, especially that was really extremely disturbing of Border Patrol agents on horseback threatening uh, Haitian migrants using whips, chasing Haitian migrants to force them outside the country. And um, this was, again, part of a lot, much larger expulsion of Haitians and other asylum seekers, again, under this guise of Title 42, with no consideration given to people's asylum claims. And I also just want to note quickly that this it was incredibly disturbing. There were very disturbing Um, photos and reportage coming out about this, but it's not an anomaly by any means. There is um, a long history, which, you know, we may be able to delve into in a future episode of violence by the Border Patrol and often violence that is racially targeted. Yeah, she mentioned a number of challenges, um, but one of the victories that Vanessa talked about was TPS for Haiti. Can you tell us a little bit about what TPS is and why it's important? Absolutely. TPS 
stands for temporary protected status. And this is a, you know, we've talked a lot on the podcast about asylum as a form of humanitarian protection for people who are fleeing uh, persecution, serious harm in their home countries. But there's some other forms of humanitarian protection that the U.S. provides. And one of them is this thing called TPS. And it's temporary, unlike asylum, which is um, permanent or leads to permanent status in the U.S. TPS is a temporary respite where we're saying to people, you can stay here in the United States. We're not going to deport you. You can work while you're here because it's really unsafe to go back to your home country. And this is something that uh, the executive branch has to decide to designate a country for TPS. And it's um, the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of State jointly make this determination that either because of some natural disaster or human created disaster, it's really unsafe for people to have to go back to their home country. And so we let them stay here under this status TPS. And so just some other examples, along with Haiti, which is now designated for TPS. Um, there was a massive earthquake in Nepal some years ago, and Nepal was designated for TPS. Uh, Syria has been designated, Cameroon, Afghanistan, places it's just not safe for people to go back. Um, so it's also, uh, it's, it can be hard to understand, really, I think, how on the one hand, we have the U.S. government saying and deciding, you know, it is not safe for people to go back to Haiti. We're going to let people here have TPS. On the other hand, some people have to go back and, and, and the U.S. is continuing to expel people back to Haiti. Um, and that's in part because the way that TPS works, you have to have gotten to the United States by a certain date in order to qualify for it. Um, but that doesn't really mean that it's any safer for the people who come after that date. Yeah. And Lindsay, as as you were listening, um, as Vanessa was talking, I'm wondering, as a listener, what impacted you the most from all the um, from everything that she said? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that hit the hardest for me was her comments on, you know, perspective taking, and she was she didn't use the term cultural bias, but the the story that she told about the closet. And how a judge had sort of decided that um, the asylum seeker's story didn't make sense because um, of hiding under the bed versus in a closet and things of that nature. But there were no questions around whether closets even existed in the home and that she she mentioned that in traditional homes in Haiti that closets generally were not a thing um, and that instead they had armoires um, and sort of dressers. And so you know, it, it, it hit me as a, as an attorney, um, you know, thinking about, um, making space for my clients to tell their stories, but it also hit me on a more human, you know, sort of general level in that, you know, we all hold biases and instead of just assuming things don't make sense or that a story doesn't make sense to engage in curious questioning about people who, are different from us and come from different backgrounds. And that allows us um, to hear their stories, but also to change our perspectives and to take others' perspectives, which of course allows us um, to grow as humans. And so I think that was the most powerful thing that she talked about. And then of course, mentioning her own story um, and how she wouldn't be where she is today unless her family um, had gotten on, on a boat. 
Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Inadmissible. We look forward to bringing you more episodes, and we'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast. To learn more about how to get involved with Vecina's work, visit vecina.org. That's V-E-C-I-N-A dot O-R-G. See you next time.